Good afternoon. What a delight to look at your faces, masked and all. And um, I, I'm imagining what the rest of your face may look like. <laughs> um, I'm going to learn that about any of you who are in my preaching class, so that's good. I was just commenting to the president um, on our way in that this is the first time I know how tall last year's students were. <laughs> uh, you're all the same height, as far as I can tell. Well, I thank the president uh, so much for this invitation um, to do the address today. He gave me a hint. He says, it's not a sermon, and on the other hand, it's not a formal lecture. Well, that was a relief on, on both sides, but um, I, I had to go look up. I, I decided to look up, what does it mean to convoke? Um, it means to summon, to call together. And since you have already been summoned and called together and you are here, I take it as, as my job to say something about the purpose for which we might be called together here, in this place, in this time. Almost precisely 18 months ago, as has been mentioned, COVID-19 dramatically interrupted all of the lives that we had taken for granted. And pretty soon a national emergency was declared and you remember how shoppers descended on the paper goods shelves like a swarm of locusts at six o'clock every morning. At least that was reality out here. Then came the weariness, the weariness of the lockdown and the isolation, the endless footage of closed businesses, closed churches, closed everything. And against a backdrop of boarded up businesses and crooked signs that said closed indefinitely, newscasters interviewed frightened business owners and terrified hourly workers who didn't have the money for the rent. We were at war with an enemy we could not see, and it brought other enemies in its wake. That constant low-level anxiety for nearly all of us depression, some heartbreaking loss very soon. It brought that sense that the place where you were was entirely too lonely and too crowded at the same time. But soon there were other stories interrupting that endless litany of despair, stories of men and women and children who responded to this massive interruption with interruptions of their own. Startling acts of unselfish kindness, sometimes at great risk to themselves. A newscaster interviews a maintenance worker who decided to give all of his cachet of N95s to the emergency room because he figured they would need them more. A restaurant owner, instead of letting her kitchen stand idle these months while she is closed, brings her workers back into the kitchen and supplies hundreds upon hundreds of meals. A hospital nurse stays on her unit long after her shift is over because she doesn't want that patient to die alone. She knows the staff coming on shift will have another half dozen in desperate shape, and they won't have time for the one whose situation is irreversible anyway. 
Some called them heroes, and it was interesting how so many resisted that label, wasn't it? They said, I was simply fulfilling my vocation. I was doing my job. The choices such people made, it seemed to me, flowed from something more, though, than simple kindness or even duty. They were actions of mercy. Mercy. What is it? Mercy, I mean literally the word mercy, got my attention one winter afternoon in 20, back in 2017. I was on my way somewhere, don't know where, my route took me past a Catholic parish church. And dominating the front lawn was an enormous white banner. It was stretched between two tall poles, and it had one word on it in enormous letters, mercy. Mercy. Why this unadorned, unexplained message? Why was it still there weeks, months later, when I would drive past the church, and then all at once it was gone, and I missed it? Later, I decided to investigate, and I learned this. Pope Francis declared what was called an extraordinary jubilee year of mercy from the end of December of 2016 through November of 2017. A jubilee year of mercy was in itself not new. As a matter of fact, it's centuries old and was originated first by a pope who declared one particular year as a year of the Jubilee of Mercy. And what that meant was that it was a year of exceptional pardon. Eventually, sometime later, another pope made that every 50 years, another after that, every 25. But 2016 and 17 would not, according to the church calendar, have ordinarily been a year of the Jubilee of Mercy, hence the term extraordinary. And the reason that it took place is that Pope Francis was signaling to the church and to the world what would be one of the distinguishing marks of his presiding over the life of the Roman Catholic Church. He wanted to focus the attention of the church and the world on mercy in two senses. First of all, as always, it was a year of exceptional pardon. As a matter of fact, the Pope declared that persons who had experienced an abor abortion, experienced divorce, could be pardoned in the rites of reconciliation, what used to be called the rites of confession and absolution. Some of the church focused, understandably, on the overwhelming accumulation of evidence for clergy sexual abuse, arguing that there must not be any easy pardon for sex offenders. What about mercy? What about justice for their victims? Interestingly enough, that concern has borne fruit just two months ago, as you probably or maybe read, uh, as recently as June 21st of this year. Now sexual um, abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and covering up such abuse has been declared a crime under the law of the Roman Catholic Church. But Pope Francis had another almost equally strong concern, and that was for the second meaning of mercy. Mercy as the concrete expression of care and 
the expression of deep engagement with sufferers, especially the voiceless and the poor. Declaring that mercy is the very foundation of the church's life, Pope Francis defined mercy this way. He said, mercy is willingness to engage the chaos of the other. Mercy is willingness to engage the chaos of the other. Well, for any of you who for any length of time at all have gotten involved with a situation of suffering on any scale, that word chaos rings true. Suffering of any kind, I found when I was doing pastoral care in a church in Pennsylvania that was one of the chief um, areas of my responsibility, whether it was bereavement, divorce, displacement, injury, illness, uh, a teenager or a young adult who was manifesting the symptoms of onset of mental illness, abuse, whatever it was, it brought a whole host of other demons in the door. Indeed, suffering is chaos. Now, as evocative as Pope Francis's definition of mercy is, and at the risk of being almost inexcusably audacious, I'd like to adjust his phrasing a bit. <laughs> uh, mercy, and Pope Francis, I believe in other contexts, insists on this himself, goes further. We might more accurately put it this way. Mercy is willing engagement with the chaos. Not just willingness to engage, but is the willing engagement with the chaos of the suffering other. Mercy is action, it is body to body, it's on the ground in a specific context, it's local, it's risky, it is the self put at risk for the sake of another. Pope Francis's thoughts on the subject of mercy really closely follow the lead of John Sabrino, who had written a collection of essays published in 1994 called The Principle of Mercy, Taking the Poor Down from the Cross. And Sabrina writes there, mercy is not the sole content of Jesus' practice, but it is mercy that stands at the origin of all that he practices. It is mercy that shapes and molds his entire life, his mission, and his fate. His fate. In support of his claim, Sabrina points us to the passage just read for us by Dr. Day, Mark 3, 1 through 6. Here's the sermonic part. <laughs> Mark 3 opens on the scene of another kind of a convocation. This convocation is the gathering of the population of a Jewish community and its synagogue on a Sabbath day. Look around. Who is here? First, in the synagogue that day, there's a bigger-than-usual crowd. That's because Rabbi Jesus has been appointed today to read the text and to comment on it. And his reputation as a healer is drawing even the less faithful curious. Jesus is at the front of the room, and on either side of him are a crowd of the scribes and Pharisees. We all know that phrase, the scribes and the Pharisees. They are there, they're the interpreters and the guardians of the sacred law of their people. And they find Jesus very disturbing because he shows little regard for sacred policy and protocol. 
it is becoming, becoming the source of deep unrest in many communities. But what is Jesus' primary concern? To learn that, we only need to follow his gaze. He is looking into the shadows at the corner of the room, and if we follow his gaze and crane our necks because it is crowded here, then we can see that there is a man there with his hand hidden in his coat protectively. Suddenly Jesus raises his voice, he points straight toward the man and he says, you come here, actually as the common English Bible translation says, come stand here where people can see you. That is not what a man with a life compromising disability wants to hear. He does not want to be visible. But forward he goes, the crowd parts. Was it out of respect or because they did not want to touch him? And then telling the story later, maybe the man with the disabled hand remembers how Jesus says, stretch it out. Do what you cannot do, stretch it out. And he may remember the heavy silence, like the eerie quiet before the first crack of, of a thunderstorm. And he withdraws the hand and he stretches it out. Jesus turns to the man and the man looks at him and he sees something in Jesus' face, which he hasn't seen for a long time, and that is compassion. And maybe he looks at his healer and wondered why he saw something else too that he couldn't quite identify. Well, Mark identifies it for us. Jesus was enraged. Mark states it in the strongest possible language. Jesus is enraged, says Mark, at the hardness of their hearts, these guardians of the law hissing their disapproval. And we, sympathetic readers of the text that we've been taught to be, are angry at them too. But maybe we need to reconsider from another point of view. It's worth remembering that all of this is unfolding amidst Roman occupation. And that helps us remember what Sabbath, what Shabbat meant to those scribes and Pharisees, and in fact, to all the people. The Jews are living under this heavy and often fickle hand of Rome. They've been stripped of their self-determination. The land is no longer theirs, and they have to live off what's left after they've paid taxes that are extraordinary. Nothing is left of their identity but their religion, their worship, the pattern of their shared life which is dictated by religious laws they regard as the very gift of God. And one of the features of their collectively unique life, even under Roman occupation, was their marking of time. The linchpin of this sacred structuring of time is keeping Shabbat week on week, the seventh day, the well-trained experts flanking Jesus that day in the synagogue see their role of ensuring right observance of Shabbat as a sacred trust. It is God's gift. It is God's instrument for the survival of the nation's covenant and life, its connection to God, its connection to identity, and its connection to hope. 
According to the commentaries of some of the rabbis over time, keeping Shabbat was the cornerstone of God's covenant with the chosen people. And in terms of time, it was the pivot point of the world. String together the Shabbats, and you marked months and years and fasts and feasts. String together years of Shabbats, and you had the sacred aspiration toward jubilee, always cherished, but as far as we know, rarely actually implemented. When in theory, all debts were forgiven, the slaves were freed, and land holdings went back to the original family. As a marker of time, Sabbath pointed backward to the creation of the world, the culmination of which was not the creation of human beings, but the holy rest of God, and it pointed forward to that future horizon of which Isaiah sings. A day on which God would create all things new, including all creatures, all elements of the created order. They knew that vision, no doubt. Shabbat was utterly critical. In fact, some rabbis taught that Shabbat was that stabilizing force that held the world together. And when it ceased to be observed, the universe itself would crumble into chaos. Jesus knows this, but he is enraged. And Mark adds something interesting. He says that Jesus was grieved. For what did Jesus grieve in that holy convocation? Maybe he's grieved not only by them, but for them. Grieved for what they cannot see. Again and again, he's tried to show them, interpret to them, that the very framework of time is shifting. He's come not only to announce the longed-for reign of God, that new day to which Sabbath points, but by merciful action to bring that new day into concrete being, a new order of things breaking out in their midst. Maybe Jesus grieves because they've lost any sense of expectancy for the inbreaking of that day. And expecting nothing, they miss in Jesus' merciful interruption of the norms and routines, the inbreaking of a new future. But he threatens all they feel duty-bound to keep in place. And so says Mark, understandably, Mark doesn't say that, but I get it. They go from that convocation to plot the destruction of this interrupter of holy time. In their 2014 co-authored book, Preaching Fools, The Gospel as Rhetoric of Folly, Homiletic scholar Charles Campbell joins Johann Silliers, a South African practical theologian, to argue that the business of Christians is to become agents of interruption. Where and when routine policies and procedures, even and maybe especially when they are labeled Christian, block the disruptive, gracious play of grace that urges us toward the horizon of God's future. 
Agents of interruption need to act to change the subject, change perspective, question the assumptions, move toward the weak rather than the strong, and move toward the horizon of God's future. Agents of interruption, argue Campbell and Silliers, disrupt the machinery of empire, those fixed systems that impose hierarchies and binaries of privilege on some, and lack and subjugation and invisibility on others. As evocative as that phrase is, here I am again wanting to amend it. I have recast the phrase in the book I most recently wrote, Agents of Redemptive Interruption. We've seen in the past year that not all forms of interruption are necessarily grace-filled. <laughs> Acts of interruption can be fueled by toxic ideologies that promote the superiority and the privilege of a supposedly chosen few at the expense of many. The term redemptive furthermore means to more explicitly connect our interruptions to the horizon of new creation and to the merciful praxis of Jesus. I find it more than incidental that only once does Jesus ever employ violence to interrupt the deadening lockstep of systems that oppress. We've seen this dynamic of interruptive, redemptive agency in the past 18 months. Thank God for a young woman who in late May of 2020 became an agent of redemption, whether she meant to or not. She simply refused to turn away from what was unfolding on a Minneapolis street corner, and she refused to turn her camera away or to turn it off. And then she had the courage to share what she had seen so we could see it. Thank God for the throngs who filled city streets to say this could not, would not stand. Thank God for George Floyd's courageous family for those who prosecuted the case and won. And we still see agents of redemptive interruption anywhere when a building crumbles, extinguishing the lives of dozens, when drought grips the West, when wildfires rage, when earthquake ravages Haiti yet again, and floods sweep away life and livelihood, livelihood agents of redemption, redemptive interruption willingly engage the chaos of sufferers. Well, as the pandemic loosens its grip, churches and theological schools are reevaluating, reconsidering their priorities. So here's my question. What might it look like for us as a community now convoked, summoned to this theological school to embrace the lived praxis of mercy. Not just the idea of mercy, but the messy kind of mercy. Concrete bodily engagement with the chaos of the suffering other. There's a question that may be on your mind, and if it's not, it should be. Why mercy? <laughs> Why not justice as the fundamental organizing principle? Well, back to Sabrino. The gritty, bodily engaged praxis of mercy, Sabrino argues, is the prerequisite to apt justice work. 
It is, in fact, the most direct doorway into real-time justice calculated to address the on-the-ground issues of a context. Mercy implies and entails justice. Mercy draws us to the center of the chaos of suffering, and it positions us to see how the machinery of injustice works. Justice work interprets that machinery and figures out how to break it. A second point, this time it's mine's, not Sabrina's. It's possible to be very into justice. You can read about justice, you can write about justice. You can throw justice into every other sermon you preach. That might be a very good idea. You can like justice on Facebook. <laughs> you can take its picture and send it on Instagram. You can tweet and retweet justice. You can do all of this and never leave your couch or your office. I have some personal experience with that. You can even feel quite a bit of compassion from the comfort of your couch. But the mercy Pope Francis was calling his church, and all Christians too, is compassion that moves, compassion that gets on the ground, the compassion that waits to hear the whole story. Mercy is compassion with dirt on its hands and blood and tears soaking its shirt. Students, whether you are new here or just new to being on campus, or whether you are seasoned and you're glad to be back, here's good news. You can make some choices about your learning strategies here. There are different ways to navigate the curriculum, but I want to encourage you. There are instructors and administrators all over this place dedicated to finding more ways, more access points for you to get involved with the chaos of other lives very different from your own. It can happen in a well-chosen field education placement. It can happen on an internship. But formalized or not, I encourage you to forge a connection that puts you in the company of chaos, the suffering of someone other than yourself. The incarcerated, the homeless, the addicted, the abused, families and individuals struggling with mental illness, the chronically ill, whatever it may be, please be proactive and find these places and go there. Pope Francis also famously said, I personally prefer a church that is dirty and bruised because it's been out in the street. Opportunities to engage the chaos of a sufferer may already be built into your life. Some of you came through this pandemic with scars. There are pictures on your dresser in your room of someone who has gone away, swept away by COVID. Some of you may be wrestling with long-term COVID syndrome, or someone you know does that. You know suffering and the chaos that goes with it. The opportunities to engage the chaos of other suffering can shape the way you approach every other part of the curriculum. You can read theology with those sufferers 
at your side. You can inquire into the biblical text and ask what it has to say to the chaos that you know. You can learn about justice and even mercy other ways, of course, by reading other people's experience, and that might do you and eventually a lot of others some good. But if your hands don't get dirty or your heart never gets broken by the chaos of another, the out there not like you other, you might suffer from an incomplete theological education. Chaos will bring you to the pulpit telling a more credible story. Be open then to the interruption of your theological education by cries. Learn from those who are agents of redemptive interruption, and I will go further as the title says, provocation, because sometimes interrupting isn't enough. You need to keep interrupting till you're a provocation. God's future is out there and already on the way. It began when Jesus, the crucified, became the risen Lord of a new creation. It's already begun. It emerges often most clearly among the ones who need it most. So, if you embrace the chaos, my guess is it's out there somewhere in the ash or in the rubble or the mud, inside the shelter or in that small town on the other side of the world that you will go to. And you'll find yourself suddenly witness to nothing less than God's interruption of ordinary time and ordinary place. You will be a witness to the inbreaking of God's fashioning of a new heavens and a new earth in the here and now.